The following message was given at Hope Church of Knoxville. For more information about Hope Church, please visit our website at hopeknox.com. And of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, the main idea that I want to communicate to you all this morning from this passage is this, that Jesus Christ commissions his church to make disciples as we go, baptize, and teach in all contexts with confidence in him. I'll say that again. The main idea of this passage is that Jesus Christ commissions his church to make disciples as we go, baptize, and teach in all contexts with confidence in him. So I want to unpack this statement for you a little bit as we move through this text. And I want to show you four things. I want to show you our mission, or excuse me, our motive, our mission, our responsibility, and our reliance on Jesus. Our motive, Jesus Christ commissions his church. Our mission, to make disciples. Our responsibility, go, baptize, and teach. And our reliance on Jesus Christ, our confidence in him. So let's look at verse 18 and begin with our motive. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now Jesus, the first thing that he does as he comes to his disciples is remind them of exactly who he is. He is the resurrected king who has all authority. And this is not an unfamiliar theme for Matthew's gospel. This is something that he's been showing us for the last 28 chapters. Uh, Just as a few examples. So in Matthew 4, verses 23 through 24, we see that Jesus has authority over health and disease in the human body. In Matthew 8:26 we see that Jesus has authority over all nature. In Matthew 8:28 through 34, we see that Jesus has authority over demons and the forces of spiritual evil. Matthew 11:20 through 24, Jesus has authority over cities and over states and over nations. Matthew 25, 31 through 33, Jesus has authority over every life. And just a few verses before our passage, Matthew 28, 1 through 10, we see that Jesus has authority over sin and death and hell. Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. And now by appearing alive to his disciples, he's backing up every claim that he has made about himself. He is who he says he is. He is the sovereign Lord of the universe. Now, that's not all that Jesus does because his claim of lordship carries with it a call to obedience. So on the basis of his authority, he commissions his church. Look at what he says next in verse 19. He says, go therefore and make disciples. So we see the word therefore. And as most of you have probably heard, when we see that word therefore, we need to ask what it's there for. And in this case, it's pointing us back to the statement that Jesus has just made about his authority. His authority is the foundation for our mission. We make disciples in his name, by his power, and for his glory. So this means that we don't get to choose. We don't get to set the terms of our obedience. We do try, though. How how many times have you said something like this or I said something like this? You know, I'd really love to get to know my neighbors. I'd really love to invite them to church, but I'm just too busy. But we make time for all sorts of trivial things. Or I'd love to give more, but I just don't have the money right now. But 
I can spend my money on things that have no real earthly value. Or how often do we lay in bed at night worrying about what's going to happen the next day, trying to plan out all of our actions, plan out all of our words, so that that situation works out just how we want to. Trying to exercise control over our own lives. And I wonder in those moments, do we see Christ's lordship over all of our lives or are we trusting in ourselves? So think about, uh, there's a scene in the movie Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Uh, for those of you who have seen the movie, for those of you who haven't, uh, the Christian life is one of repentance, so there's still, there's still time. Uh, <clears throat> but King Arthur is, is riding or pretending to ride by these two peasants, and, and they ask him who he is. And he replies, well, I'm the king. And one of the peasants says, well, I didn't vote for you. And Arthur tries to explain to him, well, you know, you don't vote for kings. That's not the way it works. And so the peasant launches into this rant about the basis of governmental authority and the the virtues of democracy. And the whole scene is just, it's ridiculous because we all just understand that that's not the way it worked back then. There was no authority of the people. There was no democracy. There was only the king's authority. But today, today we have rights We have the Constitution, and we have the Bill of Rights. We don't know what it means to have a king. In fact, we've been taught that kings are bad, that kingly authority is bad, and we have no concept of what it means to live under the authority of a king. And guess what? We don't get a say. Jesus is our king. We have no say in the governance of our lives. Jesus doesn't answer to you or me. David Platt said it this way in one of his sermons. He said, American Christian, you don't have any rights. God has all the rights. And he said this in his commentary on this verse. He said, you and I don't decide to make Jesus Lord. He is Lord regardless of what we think of him. Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave. And now he is exalted at the Father's right hand as the Lord over all creation. All those things are true, regardless of what you and I think or decide. One day, every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess Jesus is Lord. That's a guarantee. So will you confess Jesus as Lord now or will you confess him as Lord when it is too late? Friends, if you are here and you are not a Christian, please hear these words. Jesus is Lord over you and he is Lord over me. Stop fighting. Stop rebelling. Fall on your knees while there is still time. If you are a Christian, examine your life. Where are you still clinging to control? Where are you still claiming the authority that only the king can claim? Surrender to the one who is your Lord and your Savior. Now, these are very challenging words from Jesus. But for the Christian, they're not just challenging. They're comforting words as well. So think about what the disciples have just been through. They've seen their Messiah arrested and tried, stripped naked, beaten, and hung on the cross. They are scared to death. They all ran away, one of them with no clothes on, when Jesus was arrested. Peter claimed three times that he didn't know who Jesus was. They've all been in hiding since Jesus' crucifixion. Because they feared that the same thing was going to happen to them. And Jesus comes to them and he doesn't cheer them up with a pep talk like like we might in that situation. There's no, hey guys, you messed up a little bit. 
But we can still do this. We can do this together. Let's go, guys. If there's no, hey, Peter, don't worry about that whole denying me three times thing. You'll get it on the next try. The, the fourth time is a charm. We don't see that. Instead, we see Jesus reminding his disciples of who he is. And by doing that, he is pointing them to his accomplished work, his death and his resurrection. He is not just a king. He is a triumphant, conquering king. This is such a comfort to the disciples. It's as if Jesus is saying that your courage has failed, but I am the one who cannot fail. You fear the wrath of men, but I bore the wrath of God in your place. You denied me. I was obedient to death with your name graven on my hand and written on my heart. This is a comfort to us. Jesus knows our failures and our rebellions, and he loves us, and he died for us in spite of them. He took them on himself so that we can be counted righteous, so that we can now be obedient to his calling through his power and not our own. So in their book, What is the Mission of the Church? Kevin DeYoung and Greg Gilbert say it well. They say that God does not send out his church to conquer. He sends us out in the name of the one who has already conquered. We go only because he reigns. Jesus Authority is our motive. So as we continue on to verse 19 and the beginning of verse 20, we see exactly what it is that Jesus has commissioned his church to do. We see our mission. And he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now, in the original language, there is one primary command in these verses. So a lot of times we read these verses and we think the command is to go. But in reality, in, in the original language, the primary command is to make disciples. And we have three other verbs here. We see going, baptizing, and teaching. Those are all participles or helping verbs that characterize how we accomplish our mission of disciple making. Now that mission is tied to God's ultimate purpose. It's the purpose that we as the church want to see fulfilled through us. And it's the purpose that Paul explains in Philippians chapter 2 verses 8 through 11. So in Philippians 2, 8 through 11, Paul says this, speaking of Jesus. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So the reason that Jesus came and lived obediently and suffered and died the reason that he has been exalted and given the name above every name is so that everyone, everywhere, every man, woman, and child, every angel, and every demon would bow the knee to Jesus. That God the Father would be glorified through Jesus the Son. And because of what Jesus accomplished, we now have the task of pointing people to worship him. So as Adam and Jeremy have reminded us for the past two weeks, God's glory through the gospel of Jesus Christ is the aim of everything we do. 
And God desires a creation full of worshipers. And he gives us the opportunity to join in the creation of that reality by making disciples. By making people who worship Jesus Christ. That means that going, baptizing, and teaching are not ends in themselves. Every one of those things is going to cease on the day that Jesus returns. And all we'll be left with is a multitude of redeemed saints worshiping their creator. Our mission is to make disciples. So we've seen our motive and our mission. And now I want us to see our responsibility. So let's read Jesus' command again in verses 19 and 20. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So again, we see three helping verbs, going, baptizing, and teaching, that characterize our responsibility to make disciples. Again, I'll go back to DeYoung and Gilbert, and they explain that going implies being sent. Baptizing implies repentance and forgiveness, as well as inclusion in God's family. And teaching makes clear that Jesus has more in mind than initial evangelism and response. Now, there's a lot that can be said here, and I'm sure Adam doesn't want me to extend my sermon by another 20 minutes. So I want us to see three things. I want us to see three important truths from these three verbs. So truth number one, true gospel conversion and fruitful gospel growth require faithful gospel witness. True gospel conversion and fruitful gospel growth require faithful gospel witness. So pay attention to the order that these verbs appear in. We see go, baptize, teach. Going comes before baptizing, which comes before teaching. And this is a chain of events. It illustrates the progression of repentance and obedience in the life of the believer, in the life of the disciple of Christ. So let me ask you this question. Before you were saved by God, were you able to obey the teaching of Scripture? Romans 8, 7 through 8 would tell you that no, you are not. It says, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So the unbelieving mind is hostile to God. There is no desire to please God. In fact, the unbeliever cannot please God because we're at war with God. Ephesians 5 says that we were enemies of God. Cannot please him. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. For they are folly to him and he is not able to understand them. Because they are spiritually discerned. So to expect an unbeliever to obey all of the teachings of scripture without conversion is nothing more than moralism. We're giving them a list of do's and don'ts that may produce shame, may produce guilt, and may make them feel bad. But there will be no true repentance No heart change as a result. We see that teaching comes after conversion. So let me ask another question. Who here was saved completely apart from the faithful gospel witness of Christians before you? Now, some of you may be tempted to say, well, I just read the Bible and I was converted from the Bible. Let me ask you this. How did you get a Bible in your hands without the faithful gospel witness of Christians before you? 
Going back to Romans 10, 13, and 14, just a few verses later, or a few chapters later, excuse me. Paul says that for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Salvation requires preaching. Conviction and the regeneration of the Holy Spirit come through God's word delivered by God's people. Disciple making begins as the church goes out in faithful gospel witness. And this produces real gospel conversion and baptism. And this leads to the teaching of obedience and fruitful gospel growth. So if we want to see new disciples at Ho Church of Knoxville, if we want to see this progression become a reality in the life of our church, we have to prioritize faithful gospel witness. Now, there's a popular quote. Uh, it's often wrongfully attributed to Francis of Assisi, but it goes like this. It's preaching or preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words. Now, this is a great soundbite. It sounds Great, But the problem is that the gospel message must be articulated. It must be communicated through language. From the first gospel that God spoke in the garden in Genesis chapter 3 all the way to now, the gospel has always been communicated through language. The prophets preached. John the Baptist preached. Jesus came preaching. The apostles continued preaching. We are called to preach the gospel. Romans 10 says that salvation requires preaching. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 3 through 5. That I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas... Then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Have you ever tried to communicate that message through your actions? It's impossible. It's impossible. We preach the gospel and we live out its implications through our actions. Our obedience testifies to the truth of our words, but we have to speak the words first. Discipleship starts with the church going, which begs the question, to whom should we go? And this brings us to our second truth. So our first truth was that gospel conversion and gospel growth require gospel witness. Our second truth is that the task of making disciples extends to all contexts, whether it's across the globe, across the street, or across the dinner table. The task of making disciples extends to all contexts, whether across the globe, across the street, or across the dinner table. So the Great Commission is a call to do gospel work on a global scale. All nations means everyone, everywhere, across the whole earth. And this is an enormous task. It's a task that's not yet finished. There's an organization called the Joshua Project. They have a website I highly recommend, uh, but they track people groups. And a people group is just a group of people, go figure, who share a common language and a common culture. 
And they track people groups and their engagement with the gospel. So right now, the Joshua Project estimates that there are 16,584 people groups across the world. 6,733 of those are unreached, meaning they have no significant evangelical Christian presence. That means that 3.1 billion people will be born, will live, and will die, having never heard the gospel by which they can be saved. And who is going to go to them if it's not the church? It's not the responsibility of parachurch organizations. It's not the responsibility of denominations or missions organizations. It is the responsibility of the church, of us as the body of Christ, to go to the nations. Now, this global reach of Christ's command, it starts in our own homes, in our own neighborhoods. All nations includes the people around us as well as the people around the world. So we see a similar passage in Acts 1.8. And Jesus tells his disciples that they're going to be witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So they're sent not just to the end of the earth, they're sent to their lost family members and their lost neighbors, the people that they live and work and eat with, to Jerusalem and all Judea. They're sent to their neighbors. That means mom and dad raising children as you share the gospel with them, as you teach them what it means to love Jesus, to believe in Jesus, to obey Jesus. As you pray with and for them, you are doing great commission work. You are making disciples. Businessman and woman, as you share the gospel or start a Bible study with your coworkers, you are making disciples. College student. As you take the gospel to your dorm room and to your classroom, you are making disciples. We are called to be witnesses to our neighbors before we can be witnesses to the nations. Imagine this, that you own a lawn care service. And you go around all across the city telling people how great your lawn care service is, how you can make their grass green and their flowers bright. And your lawn is nothing but a patch of dust. And what little grass there is is brown and it's withered and it's littered with trash. What happens to your witness? There is none. Your so-called gospel of lawn care greatness is hollow. We are called... To be witnesses to our neighbors before we can be witnesses to the nations. We are called where we are. So it's easy to read passages like this and to say amen. It's easy to see the need for gospel work. And it's easy for me to stand here and to preach about the need for workers. But what are we doing? What can we do? Three things I want to show you. We can pray. So Matthew 9.38 says, Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. We can pray that God would burden our hearts for the lost people among our families and our friends in our community and around the world. We can pray that God would raise up men and women from our congregation willing to give themselves for the gospel and for God's global glory. We can pray that God would raise up men and women who exemplify for their children what it means to love and to believe in and to obey Jesus Christ. 
We can pray for specific people groups who have not been reached. The Joshua Project even has a mobile phone app to help you pray through unreached people groups. We can pray for people groups that have not been reached and for specific people who have heard the gospel and have rejected it. We can pray, but we can also give. We can partner with missionaries who are taking the gospel to the lost, particularly those coming from our congregation. We recently sent out Ben and Caitlin Faust. They'll be leaving very shortly for some short-term mission work in Mexico. And we had the opportunity to help them, to come alongside them, to help them raise the funds that they needed to go. And we need to look for opportunities like this to support gospel work across the nations. We also need to look for opportunities to support gospel work in our communities, to give to our, the work of our church. God calls us to be faithful stewards and generous givers with the resources that he's given us. Our budgets, both as a church and as individuals, should reflect God's priorities. We can pray, we can give, and we can go. We can send men and women out short term to partner with missionaries for support and encouragement. And we can send them out long term to plant their lives in new locations for the sake of taking the gospel to people who have not heard it. We can faithfully preach the gospel to our lost family members and to our friends and our co-workers. Even if that faithfulness means that it costs us promotion or position or power or status or relationship. We are all called to go. So as you pray for workers, ask God where he is sending you, whether that's across the dinner table, across the street, or across the world. Which brings us to truth number three. We've seen truth number one, that gospel conversion and gospel growth require gospel witness. Truth two, that making disciples happens in all contexts. And truth three, healthy reproducing local churches are the start and end points for global ministry. Healthy reproducing local churches are the start and end points for global ministry. So as we've said, it's easy to see the global reach of the Great Commission. We read it and we understand that all nations means all nations means everyone, everywhere. But it's easy for us to miss that global ministry is tied to local ministry. The Great Commission is accomplished primarily through the work of local churches. So very quickly, I want to show us three things that lead us to that conclusion. Number one, the local church provides the doctrinal foundation for our disciple making. So we see in verse 20, Jesus says, teaching them, that is the people that we go to and that we baptize, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. We can't teach something that we have not learned. We must learn ourselves first. And that learning occurs most naturally in the local church. Ephesians 4, 11 through 12 says, It's to the church that God has given the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Teachers are trained in the local church. We see the local church provides a doctrinal foundation. And next we see that observing Jesus' commands creates local church communities. So Jesus' commands encompass every aspect of the Christian life. And it's a life that's not meant to be lived in solidarity. It's meant to be lived in community. 
And as we grow in obedience to Jesus' commands, it brings us, it joins us together as the body of Christ. So just a few verses later in Ephesians 4, 15 and 16, Paul says, Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the whole body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Jesus Christ builds his church through the loving obedience of its members. So we see that the local church provides the doctrinal foundation. And as we go baptize and teach, we make disciples who are then joined together through their obedience as local churches. And third, we see that healthy local churches who want to observe all of Christ's commands will go baptize and teach. So as we reach people with the gospel, as they grow in obedience and as those local churches are established, they continue the Great Commission work. They make disciples who desire to see God glorified in all of the earth. They make disciples who desire to share the good news of the gospel in all contexts. And this chain of going, baptizing, and teaching continues to grow longer as more disciples are added. More disciples who will go and baptize and teach and make disciples. And this is how the nations are reached. Through God's plan of disciple making disciples. This is, we what, is what we want to be as Hope Church of Knoxville. We want to be a church that is for the city of Knoxville. We want to be a church that is for the nations. We want unreached people to be blessed through the work that Jesus Christ is doing among us. Our responsibility is to go baptize and teach in all contexts. So we've seen our motive, our mission, our responsibility, and now I want to show us our reliance on Jesus Christ. We've seen the mission laid out in front of us, the mission that Jesus has given us, and we understand that in and of ourselves, this task is impossible. We will fail miserably at making disciples if we try to make disciples under our own power. Or worse yet, we will make disciples of ourselves rather than disciples of Jesus. No matter how much time or talent or treasure we pour into our disciple making, we can't change people's hearts. We can't make people believe the gospel. We can't bring about repentance and faith. We can't convince atheists or Muslims or Buddhists or Hindus or Satanists or the church of the flying spaghetti monster to worship Jesus without heart transformation. So we come to the end of verse 20, understanding just how inadequate we are for this task. And we see Jesus say this, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Church, we are not alone. We are not left to figure things out on our own. Jesus sends his Holy Spirit to empower us and to guide us as we seek to live in obedience to the commands of Jesus. John Calvin says this in his commentary. As Christ gave to the apostles a commission, which they were unable to discharge by reliance on merely human power, he encourages them by the assurance of his heavenly protection. For before promising that he would be with them, 
He began with declaring that he is the king of heaven and earth, who governs all things by his power and authority. It is as if he had said that though the ministers of the gospel be weak and suffer the want of all things, he will be their guardian, so that they will rise victorious over all the opposition of the world. Jesus' promise to be with us is not empty. It is a certain promise bought by his blood and sealed by the Holy Spirit living within us. He is risen and so we can go and baptize and teach with confidence in any circumstance. In the face of doubt and discouragement, we can have confidence. In the face of opposition and persecution, we can have confidence. In the face of death, we can have confidence because the one who goes with us has conquered death and sin and hell for us. Jesus' authority is our motive. Making disciples is our mission. Our responsibility is to go, baptize, and teach in all contexts. And our reliance is on Jesus Christ alone, through whom we are already victorious. Let's pray together. Lord God, we come to you this morning understanding our frailty, understanding that we are wholly inadequate to accomplish the task that you have laid out for your church. And so we pray now that your Holy Spirit would be with us, empowering us, guiding us, helping us to obey your commands. God, stir our hearts with a passion for the lost among our friends, among our family, among our community, and around the world. God, we thank you that you have assured us of victory, that we can go in confidence because of what you have accomplished. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.